This podcast is offered by the San Francisco Zen Center on the web at sfzc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Good morning and welcome to the Green Dragon Valley Temple on this Independence Day weekend. A holy day called Independence Day. And in Dharma circles, we sometimes like to rename it Interdependence Day. May all beings, uh, as celebrated on this day, be free from oppression, free to uh, practice and live the way they would like to freely and be well and happy. So I think that we all understand the meaning of interdependence, at least basically, and why we, we love interdependence, um, the realm where uh, we're not separate individuals, but interdependent with each other and with everything. Uh, but also, and maybe a more... Uh, less celebrated version of Dharma, we can also celebrate uh, Independence Day, the holy day of Independence Day. And how would we understand Dharma uh, independence? Suzuki Roshi, our Zen Center founder, often spoke of big mind and uh, in his collection of teachings called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, he uh, says, if your mind is related to something outside itself, that mind is a small mind, a limited mind. So uh, this is one way we could understand and celebrate uh, independence. Big mind is, in a sense, independent because unlike small mind, it's not related to anything uh, outside itself. Small mind is, small mind is kind of an interdependent mind. It's related to other interdependent minds and other things, according to this uh, version of Suzuki Roshi's teaching. If your mind is related to something outside itself, that mind is a small mind, a limited mind. If your mind is not related to anything else, then there's no dualistic understanding in the activity of your mind. 
kind of implying here, kind of surprisingly, that this realm of um, relatedness or interdependence is kind of dualistic. Dualistic means there's two aspects of the situation. So, so we could say the small mind is related or dependent on other things, but that's a little bit dualistic because there's something else for it to depend on, right? <clears throat> Suzuki Roshi goes on, big mind experiences everything within itself. Do you understand the difference between these two minds, the mind which includes everything and the mind which is related to something or dependent on something? So he doesn't use the word independent mind, but maybe pushing it a little further to, to express it that way. I think we could understand big mind is it's so big that there's nothing for it to be related to. There's nothing for it to be outside of it. So it's not interdependent with anything, but it includes everything. And it includes all interdependent uh, appearances within itself. Suzuki Hoshi asks, do you understand the difference between these two minds, the mind which includes everything within itself and the mind which is related to something? Actually, he says, they're the same thing, but the understanding is different and your attitude towards your life will be different according to which understanding you have. that everything is included within your mind is the essence of mind. And whatever you experience is an expression of big mind. You might say within big mind. Can you follow a little bit? This is in his mind waves chapter of Zen mind, beginner's mind. <clears throat> big mind you can't you can't see it you can't get a hold of it um if it's something that you, that you could see then that would be some related kind of mind it's what we are always already inescapable nothing outside of it very intimate so intimate that there's no relationship possible within this big mind. It's the realm of unity appearing as multiplicity. And uh, this big mind, Suzuki Roshi uh, coins this term big mind, I think quite beautifully to express a Buddhist, a Buddhist concept called Buddha nature. Buddha nature is maybe more of a technical term. 
colloquially, you could call big mind. It's not related to anything because everything's included within it. Buddha nature. Uh, Buddha means awake. Uh, the awakened nature of all beings. It's taught that uh, all living beings have or even are this Buddha nature. We all are big mind and our individual, our individual selves are appearing within big mind. <clears throat> so, Suzuki Roshi says in the epilogue of uh, Zen mind, beginner's mind, everyone has Buddha nature. We each must find some way to realize our true nature. Buddha nature, big mind. <clears throat> the purpose of practice is to have direct experience of the Buddha nature which everyone has. Suzuki Roshi might say at different times, other purposes of our practice, but in the epilogue and the conclusion of his classic collection of talks, says the purpose of practice is to have direct experience of this Buddha nature, which everyone has, we might even say, which everyone is, it is our true nature. He says, whatever you do should be the direct experience of Buddha nature. Buddha nature means to be aware of Buddha nature. Your effort should extend to saving all sentient beings from suffering. I think this is one of the great lines <laughs> unique to Suzuki Roshi. Okay, let's define Buddha nature. Many ways to define it, but here, what does it mean? Buddha nature means to be aware of Buddha nature. That's a kind of a koan you can sit with for the rest of your life. Buddha nature means to be aware of Buddha nature. <clears throat> and this is the purpose of our practice. Elsewhere, Suzuki Roshi says, in our practice, the most important thing is to realize that we have Buddha nature. Intellectually, we may know this, but it's rather difficult to accept. If we say, um, if we call it this Buddha nature, something like the Zen ancestors sometimes called it, like ordinary mind, it might be a little easier to accept it. Ordinary, just in the sense that it's always present, it's inescapable. This right now is Buddha nature. We're having this meeting within Buddha nature. 
none of us are related to Buddha nature because we are Buddha nature. We're not dependent on Buddha nature because we are manifestations of Buddha nature. We are Buddha nature appearing here and now as each of us. <clears throat> so in celebrating our Independence Day uh, and Buddha nature, <clears throat> I'd like to bring up a, a Zen koan. I don't know why this one kind of strikes me. It's kind of, it's not exactly a story. It's, um, it's like questions. It's, this koan comes in the form of questions offered to each of us. It's case number 47 in the Gateless Barrier collection of Zen koans. And it's uh, called Do Shui's Three Barriers in the collection called The Gateless Barrier. So in Zen, there's this word barrier, or um, maybe more like, maybe more literally, it means like a frontier pass, like a whole booth at the edge of uh, civilization, something like that. And uh, I guess in old China, there were these, um, frontier passes that you had to um, pay your toll to get through. So um, they're like barriers. And unless you have the, the fare, you can't get through, I guess, either to civilization or to the wild openness outside of civilization, depending, depending which way you're traveling to the barrier. And this collection of Zen koans is wonderfully called the gateless barrier. So it's like this frontier pass. It's a barrier to get through, but there's no gate. There's not like a certain doorway in the barrier that you can like open a walk through. It's more like the barrier itself is a gate. It's not like a gate in some particular location, but just being one with the barrier, you pass through. So uh, within this gateless barrier collection, the case, case, public case number 47 is called Do Shui's Three Barriers. Within the gateless barrier, he's going to offer three other barriers, passes, toll booths to... Um, pass through this teacher called Do Shui or Tosetsu um, is a transliteration of Tushita. Uh, the Sanskrit word Tushita is a heavenly realm where the future Buddha Maitreya lives. When, uh, when the present Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha's dharma uh, disappears from this world system and everyone's forgot all about it. Then Maitreya, the Buddha of love, will appear 
to benefit beings in the future. And uh, there was a, an old Zen temple in old China called uh, Tushita Temple. Maybe there was a, maybe on the main altar, there was an image of Maitreya Buddha. And this was this Zen ancestor's temple. So he's, he's called Tushita. <clears throat> and uh, maybe I'll just read you his three barriers first, these three questions to pass through, and then we can talk about them. They're all about Buddha nature. So now we have some background on what we're talking about here. Big mind. Tushita, Zen ancestor, Tushita's uh, first barrier for us. Parting the grasses, exploring the mystery is only to see your true nature, Buddha nature. Right now, venerable one, where is this nature? Right now, where is your Buddha nature? The second barrier is if you have realized Buddha nature, you're free of birth and death. When the light of your eyes begins to dim, in other words, when you're starting to die, when your body's dying, how are you free of birth and death at such a time? The third barrier is when you're free from birth and death, you know where to go. So as your four elements disperse, after you've died, the elements of your body disperse. Where do you go? These are the three barriers of uh, Zen ancestor Tushita. <laughs> so um, I find them intriguing and um, inspiring. This is not only about, um, about encouraging us to um, discover our own Buddha nature right now. That's the first one. But the second two are about this dying and death business. So challenging, so um, inescapable. And we want our practice to uh, apply to everything, including our own dying and even after our death. So starting with the first barrier, parting the grasses, exploring the mystery. I think this is poetic Zen way of talking about um, like making our way through all these weeds and grasses, tall grasses or um, lost in a, in a field of tall grasses, pushing our way through. In other words, there's no path here. We're, we're trying to push aside the tall grass to find our way. I think is a, is a wonderful metaphor 
for Zen practice. And it often can feel this way. I know there's supposed to be a path here, but um, I don't know where I am. I feel stuck and, uh, and I'm just, but I feel compelled to move forward, parting the grasses, pushing aside the weeds, looking for the way, looking for Buddha nature. Because Suzuki Goshi says, the most important thing is to realize we have Buddha nature and we each must find some way to realize Buddha nature, our true nature. Where is it? We know it's everywhere. We know it's inescapable. But um, what does Suzuki Yoshi say? Intellectually, we may know this, but it's rather difficult to accept. So we push our way through these grasses, and the tall grasses and the tallest, stickiest, thorniest grasses are like the past and future. So thorny. Oh, the past, I regret. Why did I have to do it like that? And the future, like, what am I going to do next? How am I going to figure it out? They forgot to give me the instruction manual. Those are the thorny grasses, the past and the future. Worry and regret and fear and um, you know, fantasy about other times and places. So our Zen practice is so much about just being here now. So simple, so difficult, isn't it? So those are the big grasses in Zazen and all day long. Oh. Here, now, always here, now. And those, those big tall grasses, of, but what about that past? How can I relive it again now? Aside. What about what I'm going to do after I leave Green Gulch? Push it aside. <laughs> and then we get maybe we push those big thorny grasses aside, and then we get to this the shorter grasses, the smaller grasses are, are just here in the present, but they're still they're still confusing. They're um the the grasses of what did you just say? I guess that's a little bit past already. What are you saying right now? And um, what's going on here? And what's that sound? And uh, what am I seeing here and now? And what, what, and these, these feelings, these sights, these sounds, these feelings, these emotions, these sensations, this bodily ordeal of um, living in this, lump of flesh, it's decaying quickly. <laughs> what about all this? These are, this is present moment experiences, but they're still like, where's, our, where's the Buddha nature in all this? So these are more grasses we're kind of pushing through. We're, we're working with, we're not pushing away any present experience, but we're um, 
we're working with this unblazed trail through all these moment-to-moment -moment experiences. Where is big mind? Where are these experiences happening? We heard they're happening in big mind. Is big mind another experience? No, because if it was, it would just be dependent on other experiences. Anything that, that comes and goes, we call an experience, is dependent on other factors, on the previous experiences and other people's experiences and uh, the world. So um, strictly speaking, as I would understand, experience is something always temporary, which means it's always dependent and uh, therefore it's not Buddha nature. Buddha nature is not an experience. Buddha nature is like the space, the boundless, unlocated, timeless, ever-present space in which all experiences are happening, are coming and going. Big mind is not an experience, but it includes all the moment-to-moment -moment small minds, what we call experiences, arising and ceasing within big mind. So if it's not an experience, how can we find it? We're moving through these grasses, looking for it. Could it be that our very making our way through these grasses, exploring, investigating the mystery of Buddha nature is itself Buddha nature. Could it be otherwise? Buddha nature is not something we're going to find uh, at the end of the grassy field. What if there is no end to the grassy field? It's not exactly that the grasses themselves are the Buddha nature, but uh, their nature is Buddha nature. They're appearing within big mind. If we look very carefully, each blade of grass is actually big mind itself, awareness itself. We can't find anything other. But each grass has its own particular sticking points. So we kind of like, we get stuck in these blades of grass. We forget that their nature is Buddha nature and our nature is Buddha nature. <clears throat> In the, uh, the great Parinirvana Sutra, the Buddha's maybe quintessential source of Buddha nature teachings. Epic, vast, uh, great vehicle sutra that was very influential for the Zen tradition and understanding of Buddha nature. 
Uh, in the sutra, it's taught that um, by analogy, that looking for the Buddha nature in particular experiences is a little bit like um, looking for music in some part of the guitar. And the sutra tells this story of somebody who's, who is, um, is listening to this beautiful guitar music, maybe lute or whatever ancient Indian string instrument they had in those days. Where, what's the source of this beautiful, you know, seemingly formless music? I, I want to get a hold of it. And I know it's something to do with this guitar. So I want to find the source of it. I want to find like, where exactly in the guitar does this music come forth? So this person started dissecting the guitar, started like, chopping it into parts, right? Like, you know, took off the neck of the guitar and like shook it, put it to his ear, like, ah, music doesn't seem to be there. The body of the guitar held it to his ear. The music's not there. Even the, hang the hanging string of the guitar. There's no music there. He got very frustrated um, trying to find the music beautiful music seems to come forth from this guitar, but it's not in any of the parts. It can't be found. The beautiful music can't be found in any particular part of the guitar. Just like Buddha nature can't be found in any particular experience. And yet, the totality of all experience in the present is, um, is manifesting Buddha nature. It's expressing Buddha nature inevitably. Music is a great mystery, and so is Buddha nature. So parting the grasses of our all challenging experiences, exploring the dark mystery is only for the purpose of seeing, realizing our true nature, Buddha nature. So in this story, uh, it's, the, it's the term Kensho is only for the purpose of Kensho, seeing nature. And nature generally refers to this Buddha nature. But of course, it's not something that can be seen in the way we see other things. It can't be experienced as a particular experience but it can be verified, it can be practiced and verified. By itself. I, the person cannot verify Buddha nature, but Buddha nature can verify itself and is, in fact, verifying itself moment to moment by being itself. And we, as people, can accord 
with this. So this issue of Kensho um, in our Soto lineage, we're not so fond of this term because our founder, Dogen Zenji, way back in the 13th century, was not so fond of this term. I think he felt like it could be misunderstood as it's something that we're supposed to see rather than a reality that we are and must be completely. So um, maybe a little, a little um, side note here on, uh, because this word Kensho is in the, is in the koan um, about this, these schools of Zen, Soto and Rinzai, Japanese names for Saodong and Linji in old China. And uh, so we can find sort of different emphases, but I think the main point is that it's all Buddha Dharma, not just Buddha Dharma, it's all Zen. It's one school of Buddha nature. But there's different methods and different emphases. So at the risk of making it sound like these are two different, we can talk about some stylistic differences. And uh, we can hear about them through the words of our founder, Shunryu Suzuki Roshi, in a, uh, a talk in July of 1971, a few months before the light of his eyes dimmed and uh, his elements dispersed later that year. <clears throat> Suzuki Roshi says, in Rinzai Zen, you can forget about dualistic life for a moment. This is so-called Kenjo. Literally means seeing nature, seeing Buddha nature. But even though you have Kensho, you don't have a Buddhist life completely. You just get a glance of your Buddha nature. Maybe we could say a glimpse of your Buddha nature, which is not egoistic. This is, you know, his way of speaking English. We might say um, a glimpse of Buddha nature where there's no self. No separate self. That's what you're glimpsing. It's not egoistic. But a glimpse arises at a particular moment and it ceases. A glimpse, it's hard to say a glimpse is anything other than an experience. And an experience um, is dependent on various factors. It's, um, and it's impermanent. It's not Buddha nature, but there can be an experience at a certain moment um, where uh, one is really in accord with this verification of Buddha nature. And then that verification um, seeps into the ordinary um, personal human mind says, aha, 
that aha is not actually the Buddha nature, but it's a, as Suzuki Roshi says elsewhere, it's like a letter from emptiness. Suzuki Roshi says, um, we can't see emptiness. We can't experience emptiness directly. It's not an experience, but um, emptiness sends letters and we can receive letters from emptiness. They're like letters like you open up the letter and it says, this is the realization of emptiness. This is the letter. Uh, so Suzuki Roshi says, you get a glimpse of Buddha nature in Kensho. It's not egoistic, but it doesn't last because you're so busy and you're deeply involved in your usual way of life. Oh, that's why we have to, um, yes, we're like in a, in a retreat or something and we really taste it and then the retreat ends and we have to get back to busyness and we, um, we get lost in the grasses again, right? Making our way through these grasses. Where's the Buddha nature now? It is in this grass, each blade of grass, each experience. And, um, but of course, it's very helpful to um, kind of, what should we say? Mow the lawn sometimes. We call sashin. It's like, there's still some grass, but we mow it down really, really um, short. So it's like kind of easier to, um, to uh, accord with Buddha nature. Then maybe we get busy again and uh, we can forget it less and less. So um, that's his Suzuki Yoshi's summary here of the Rinzai way. And he says, the Soto way is to follow this non-dual way of life like Tassahara, he says which is our other Zen center, we could say Green Gulch. If you follow Soto way, even though you don't feel you've entered non-dual experience, more and more your life will be non-dualistic because our way of practice is set up according to the non-dualistic way of Buddha. We kind of set up a kind of a lifestyle, a way of living, that's based on Buddha's non-dual awakening and the way he expressed it, which is, for example, having like daily zazen. So great. And, and all of you visiting, you don't need to be living at Green Gulch to have a, a daily zazen practice that's setting up a non-dualistic way of life where you basically, it's a time when we're not busy. I mean, ideally, we're not too busy during Zazen. It's a time to really be here now. Not that it's so easy, but it's maybe easier than when we're having to think about the past and the future. So we set up, uh, our way of practice is set up according to the non-dualistic way of Buddha. That's why we in the Soto school put more emphasis on how to eat, how to drink, how to walk, how to work, 
how to recite sutras. So those rituals set up by the Soto teachers are based on non-dualistic idea. And I, you know, these are, it's almost a caricature um, summary of some different emphases between Rinzai and Soto schools, but it, I think he does get at um, some flavor, flavor difference. We, we like pay attention to this, to this ex beautiful um, expressions of practice. We have a way to do each thing carefully and lovingly, attentively and beautifully, formal, ancient, ritual ways of doing things um, that are set up based on a way to express this Buddha nature that's already here. So it's less about seeing something just about getting a glimpse, the emphasis is more on just expressing our life through that. And then maybe slowly, maybe gradually, like walking through the mist, we start to feel more and more like the way we offer incense just like this is like the kind of sense of the... Uh, this is happening within big mind as an expression of big mind. <clears throat> and Suzuki Roshi, later in this talk, he says, the difference between the people who have attained enlightenment and those who haven't is, want to hear this one, is whether they realize their hat is on their head or not. Sometimes having your hat on your head, you will seek for your own hat. Where's my hat? But actually your hat's on your head. We have Buddha nature, but most people don't feel that way and are seeking for Buddha nature somewhere else. It's like seeking for treasure when you have a lot of jewels and diamonds in your pockets. Which I think that, that, uh, that saying of Suzuki Yoshi is a nice commentary on um, Tushita's first barrier, parting the grasses of each experience Investigating the mystery is only to see our true nature, Buddha nature. Venerable one, that means all of you. Venerable because you're, you're single-mindedly uh, exploring the mystery only to verify Buddha nature. It's a very venerable practice. Right now, venerable ones, where is your Buddha nature? Where's my, where's my hat? Parting through the, uh, all this, um, all these shirts and pants and socks and gloves and jackets and shoes. Where's my hat? It's not far away, it's, it's just, um, 
it's kind of nice chose hat because it's it's something that's so close to our eyes right? so close that we can't really see it it's almost it's like a little bit behind our eyes so but we're, we're looking out there and with all in all these grasses how do we turn the light of awareness around to verify um, we are aware right now are are we aware right now? Am I aware right now? You can ask it sincerely, naively, and um, curiously, like a child would ask, am I aware right now? Oh, yeah, of course. I was, I was like, working with all these grasses, thoughts and emotions and sights and sounds and bodily sensations. But actually, there's an awareness that's ever present. It can't be grasped. And as soon as I ask if it's present, it's very easy to verify that it's present. Just we're talking about ordinary awareness. Are we aware? Yes. The moment we say yes, that is, I would I would say that is being aware of being aware. It's not some special tricky business. It's just verifying the fact that we're aware right now. And that this awareness is not a, um, is not exactly our own personal consciousness. That's how we, we might feel like my awareness is um, residing inside my skull. And yours is in your skull, and it's um, it's generated by a bunch of synapses in a in a lump of gray flesh called the brain. Scientists in modern times might might talk this way, but it's not the way the Buddhists and ancestors talked. There's no evidence that this presence right now is a product of um, a material brain. There's some relationship between what we call the brain and, um, and conscious experience. But uh, the fact that there's no evidence that uh, awareness is a product of a physical brain relates to the next two barriers here. But this, uh, this awareness, the Buddha nature we're speaking of is not subjective personal consciousness. It's not a subject that's related to others, right? Big mind is not related to anything. Our individual consciousness is related to objects that it's experiencing. So it's not the individual consciousness. This is an unrelated uh, Buddha awareness. I recently came across this, um, and the, the, I think a kind of nice pertinent um, uh, writing from Thomas Cleary, the late uh, Zen translator, and a commentary on Dogen. And he's talking about the Rinzai and Soto thing. So since we're on this topic, just to bring this up. <laughs> Half-baked Rinzais. This is a little kind of a little critique. I, I think of inspiring to me. 
that he's talking about the misunderstandings of both Rinzai and Soto. Half-baked Rinzais brag about their supposed awakening, while half-baked Sotos suppose they're already awake. Half-baked Rinzais tend to mistake altered states for true awakening, while half-baked Sotos tend to mistake their own subjectivity for true suchness. Their own subjectivity is like, well, I hear that uh, this ordinary mind, awareness itself, is um, Buddha nature. So that's just my subjective consciousness that's related to you and that dwells inside my skull. These Soto people maybe they're not they're not they're less into the like altered states maybe but more into like yeah my experience now my experience is buddha nature and everything and you all are kind of related to it but outside of it by being related to it so um the second barrier that they build on each other here. So the first is about realizing Buddha nature. The second barriers of Tushite is if you've realized your true your self, your own true nature, Buddha nature, that was the point of the first one, you're free of birth and death. Because this um, Buddha nature, right, is it's not related to anything. Birth and death are not something outside of Buddha nature. They're, appearing, they're experiences. Birth and death are experiences arising within Buddha nature. So therefore, Buddha nature is free from birth and death while it can manifest as birth and death or anything else. If you realized your true nature, you're free of birth and death. When the light of your eyes dims, when you're about to die, how are you free? This is something we're all, we all will face this moment when the light of our eyes dims. In the, uh, the temple I practiced at in Japan, uh, temples always have a cemetery where every morning we'd go out and we'd, we'd chant for the, um, the, the graves of the, of the deceased um, temple supporters from past centuries whose families were no longer around. They were, they were all collected together and, and uh, because their families wouldn't come and, and make offerings to their ancestors, we as the resident practitioners would do so. And in the entrance into the cemetery, there was a big stone um, kind of ancient stone carved sign it said um, in Japanese, yeah. we were once like you are now. You will one day be like us. Which I found very moving to uh, remember. There's a lot more of them, too, than there are of us. <laughs> so... Uh, There's something it's like to be aware right now. And 
And though experiences are changing moment to moment, the something it's like to be aware, is it not always actually the same? The experiences are constantly changing, but there's something it's like to simply be aware. And we've never experienced this simple something it is like. We've never experienced the beginning of that or the end of it. It's impossible if, to experience a kind of end of it. There would have to be another awareness, something it's like to be another awareness in order to experience the ending of one, of, of this awareness. So it's not, it's not like this is maybe a, a kind of profound point that you could consider um, over time. But if, if big mind is something that um, doesn't come and go, this can be verified, then um, it's, it's impossible to verify a beginning and end of awareness. It's, it didn't it start when we were born and won't it end when we die? Again, it's our logical mind might think that way at first, but there's no evidence for that. Nobody remembers, think the first moment of consciousness and before they were born even in the womb or something. Is it just a matter of we can't remember it because it's so far back? Or is it that there wasn't a moment when it actually began? This is something we could consider. And that, yes, of course, the brain dies at death. The um, individual consciousness, all the memories, all the sense of self, of course, all that disappears at death. But um, there's something it's like right now. It's called the dark mystery Very ordinary, but um, undeniable. How could there not be something it's like? Again, not for me. Kokyo is not going to last very long here, but um, but uh, I have a deep intuitive sense that there will always be something it is like to be aware. Not for me. This is, doesn't have to be divided into me and you here. There, will, there always has been, there always will be something it's like to simply be aware. It's a strong intuition, and it's hard to know what happens after we die. But um, if we're free from birth and death, as we begin the dying process in the light of eyes dims, how... Can we practice in this life um, to develop confidence in our Buddha nature such that we can really let this body go when it's time to let it go? And then um, and the third barrier is um, when you're free from birth and death, you know where to go. So as your four elements separate, this is kind of after the body has died. This is the old way of talking about the earth, wind, fire, and water, the four elements that make up the body. When they disperse, that's the old Buddhist way of understanding physical death. When the four elements separate and disperse after death, where do you go? Venerable ones. We know where the body goes. We know that the individual 
consciousness and all its memories from this life um, doesn't last. But what about this Buddha nature? Does it come and go? Or is it not related to anything? As the, the Buddha famously said in the early teachings, there is an unborn, unbecome, unmade, unfabricated. If there were not, then liberation from the born, the made, the fabricated could not be realized. But there is an unborn, deathless. What is this? And is it somewhere else? If it were somewhere else, it would, it would have to be dependent, actually, on time and place and um, people finding it and so on. <clears throat> one time, uh, Nan Chuan, another one of the Chinese ancestors, um, said, uh, where knowledge doesn't reach, don't speak of it. Excuse me. If you speak of it, horns will grow on your head. Later, when Nan Chuan was about to die, uh, the head monk asked him, after you die, where will you go? And Nan Chuan said, down the mountain to be a water buffalo in the town down below the monastery. And the monk said, uh, can I follow you? Nan Chuan said, if you follow me, you must come with a blade of grass in your mouth. Excuse me um, for growing such long horns. I hope you can even get out of the room without getting tangled up in these horns. And uh, it's just about time to, um, to stop. No, to stop? Yeah, to stop, right? Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our programs are made possible by the donations we receive. Please help us to continue to realize and actualize the practice of giving by offering your financial support. For more information, visit sfzc.org and click Giving. May we fully enjoy the Dharma.